0: Hello and welcome to Smart Pill, a podcast where each episode delivers concentrated knowledge on one specific topic. The podcast is brought to you by the WHRO Emerging Leaders Board, a diverse group of young professionals who are passionate about bringing public media to a millennial generation. I'm your host, Ryan McIntyre. This episode, I talk with Phil Adango. On a previous episode, Phil shared his origin story telling us how he found himself as a celebrated cosplayer in the world of comic conventions. We wanted to have him back to spend some time one-on-one and talk about what it's like as a professional cosplayer. On competition day, it begins at 6 o'clock, probably ends at
1: 10, 11 p.m. The criticism that he's faced. It must be the Sorcerer Supreme Pizza.
0: And what keeps him moving forward in this unique career because it always has to come from a place where I enjoy it. The conversation does have some frank discussions about race, gender, and body image. So get ready, because it's time to take your smart pill. Now, Phil, I think it's probably safe to say that you're sort of one of the fastest growing names and recognizable persons in professional cosplay in the United States right now. Would, I mean, would would you agree with that? Yeah, I would think that
1: over the past uh, year or so that... I think my level and recognition within the cosplay community has increased, and a lot of it has been due to the perception and reception of my cosplays that have been featured in publications like New York Times, Chicago Tribune, it was Forbes magazine as well.
0: So it started to grow its profile, so I'm excited to see where it goes. This is probably a good chance for us, though. Uh, Not everyone knows exactly what cosplay is. So just let us know from from your point of view, what is cosplay? Sure.
1: For the everyday person, cosplay is a contraction of costume and play, and being able to creatively express yourself through costume play. Uh, Cosplay as a concept really originated in Japan where Japan is known for its Harajuku district. But this is a district in Japan called Harajuku where styles are embraced, where you have Lolita styles, which are the maid style uh, dresses. And you've got uh, a love for anime characters and a love of Japanese pop culture and Japanese pop music so it's a fusion of a lot of different styles and art forms and part of this is a growing movement within Japan for costume play
0: and for the most part we see this um, in pop culture here in the states at least as uh, people dressing up as some of their favorite movie characters or video game characters um, or things like that Am I'm correct
1: Yes. um, What we've seen over the past decade or so is this idea, which really I think came from um, San Diego Comic-Con, which is known as Comic-Con International. And the concept of a Comic-Con has gone beyond just comic book aficionados, the ones who are searching for the rare comic book issue. Instead, what we've seen is an evolution where Comic-Cons, Comic conventions have become more of fan conventions.
0: You really burst onto the scene with your first major build, your first uh, major costume, the 2016 New York Comic Con, where you portrayed uh, Doctor Strange, and it's really taken off from there. It was out of that that you got a partnership, a sponsorship with Marvel, is that correct? I was featured by
1: Marvel um, as part of their October cosplay feature, and with the 2016 New York Comic-Con, I had um, seen the, the marketing materials for the Doctor Strange film, and I fell in love with the design of the, the Sorcerer Supreme and the intricacies and the layers of the fabrics that created the costume. And I wanted to interpret that for myself, and it took me about over five months from... Reconcepting, reconceiving the design to fit my proportions, sourcing fabric, and actually sitting down and sewing it, I was able to finally get to a point where I felt confident enough to enter it into the New York Comic Con and be selected for competition. I was really excited, one, to be able to showcase the work that I had been able to blood, sweat, and tears pull together because of the intricacies of the design. And second, to be able to share my passion with folks who love Marvel, who love Doctor Strange, and
0: who love cosplay. Those that were at or have listened to our episode, Origin Stories know about your success with the Maui. But regardless of success, what are some of your favorite cosplay creations that you've made?
1: I would say that one of my favorites is Radagast the Brown Wizard from from the hobbit and so having been a fan of tolkien's work and the world that he's created i really resonated with radagast being this kind of side character he only appears in a few lines in the actual book itself but in the film the hobbit he gets some screen time and he has a sled so there's something uh, fascinating about these side characters they're not necessarily the protagonists but they're whimsical they've got something creative and funky going on with them And when I created my Radagast costume, I really enjoyed being able to create his hat made out of a bucket and uh, sourcing different materials to create his cloaks and his robes and being resourceful about that. So, and it was my first time working with prosthetic facial appliances. Mm -hmm. So for me, Radagast was an experiment and an exploration, I should say, of different techniques that I can later apply.
0: You said you're drawn to Radagast because he's this interesting sort of side character. Is there a bit of your personal life imitating art there? I mean, do you at times see yourself as a as a side character in your own story? Uh, I would say that
1: as um, someone who's been involved in theater and in acting, whenever I watch a film or whenever I see a play, I'm paying attention to what the principal characters are are doing, but I always look to the side. It's kind of like when you're at a wedding and people are all looking at the bride coming down the aisle, but when you take a glimpse at the groom who's standing there at the altar, there's such emotiveness and character and um, and a world of humanity that you can find within that. And I find the same to be true for characters in film, that the supporting characters also have a role to play and they can sometimes be a, a game changer.
0: So I'm really interested in hearing how you decided to get into cosplay. I would say that my first official cosplay
1: was Russell, the little boy from Up, Disney Pixar's Up. And I love the character because you have this um, little Asian boy with a little Boy Scout um, wilderness adventure uh, badges. And he's on this journey to go kind of find himself. And he goes on along an epic trip so i love this whole epic hero arc that he goes through and something about his character his his longing for adventure uh really resonated with me and so i went into my closet and created a closet cosplay of of him and i enjoyed the portrayal and when i when i got to experience that exuberance of the character uh that's when i really knew that started to click that i love this form of creative expressionism
0: I think that it is safe and fair to say that you you are a larger man, and you tend to often portray characters that when we see them on the screen or on the comic book page, aren't. They tend to be muscular and thin, and that's a part of what you've really found a lot of ownership with. Cosplaying outside of your physical body type and your race, what has that been like for you? I think it's been a fascinating
1: journey to be able to cosplay outside of a type. I think, you know, what I've found is that, you know, there are characters who may not necessarily look like me, act like me, sound like me, or have abilities that I do. But I think that's also part of the joy and
0: also the, the willingness to be able to kind of explore that other side. Have you experienced pushback or have you experienced verbal or any type of abuse from judges or from other cosplayers when you've chosen to take that risk to do so
1: um from judges and cosplayers within that community i think that i haven't received pushback from those particular people in the community but the community is cosplayers and the audiences they interact with Mm -hmm. and i have encountered when i was picked by marvel and to be featured by them i did get some online pushback that oh you know dr strange um you know isn't mexican you know i was called like you know dr strange doesn't look like you know george lopez or um they called out for um being a plus size cosplayer oh it must be the sorcerer supreme pizza you know things like that you know where you know as someone who's 34 years old and having lived enough of a life to you know to be able to see it and understand it for what it is and not necessarily internalize that Mm -hmm. has it stopped you from cosplaying a character in the past uh, it hasn't stopped me from cosplaying characters. I think it's something that is, you know, very much what you'd find in any field where uh, people who are put into a spotlight of sorts, you know, they do receive negative attention. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you know, it's it's about empowering community and being able to turn
0: that breakdown, you know, uh, into a breakthrough for another cosplayer. I wonder if you have an opinion or what you think, then, as far as caucasian cosplayers cosplaying asian characters or if a white guy cosplays as maui and how does that then work where does that line need to be or where do you see that line being um what's the etiquette of that
1: sure i think um there's there's a couple of dynamics that are happening here um within cosplay there's one is a school of thought that anyone can cosplay And then another school of thought is this whole representation matters. And so you've got these uh, ideas where there are groups that have been marginalized through lack of representation whether it's on film or comic book or or what have you and then you've got another where it's like well i'm doing it because i'm passionate about it and uh, if i can truly cosplay whoever i want then i'm not limited by my race or type or what have you and so there have been some controversies about you know caucasian people either uh race facing or black facing or uh, trying to look a different ethnicity than what they are in order Mm -hmm. to match the accuracy of uh, the character. And so you've have these descending school of thoughts where it's like, well, I'm just trying to be respectfully accurate to the character. At the same time, you've got um, the other side saying, well, you know, you, you can put on a costume, but you haven't lived their experiences, that the people you're representing have valuable lived lives. Mm-hmm. And do you understand that you can take off your costume, but we can't? Mm-hmm. And so there is that, you know, those, those thinking that goes into all of that. And, and there are people who race face... Quote unquote, who don't do it maliciously, and they do it for the the fun of the character, enjoyment of the character, and not to put or denigrate any other you know groups down. But there is that kind of etiquette and fine line between: Are you the cosplayer as a human being, you know, knowledgeable and appreciative of and able to be respectful of the the challenges that these groups have been through? For you, does that a lot of the times come back down to the sense of privilege? I think there is a sense of um, privileged ignorance. You know, there's a sense, well, and I think this might happen in other countries as well that uh, may not be aware of blackface. This has happened to a friend of mine where countries may not necessarily have a history of the minstrel-style blackface that has happened here in the U.S., but there are still, you know, semblances or forms of it in other countries. And maybe... Privilege might be too strong of a word. I think. I think it's there's just an idea that that we have a very Western perspective of things, and sometimes other countries uh, like Japan or in Asia, where having light skin is perceived as as a plus. And in the Philippines, where I was born, I mean, you can go into any grocery store, there'll be skin whitening soaps there right in front of you, because there is this idea of whiter the better. And so for countries like Japan, Philippines, when they see Caucasian cosplayers, cosplaying you know Asian characters, They feel a sense of like, oh wow, you know, this is great because this is the ideal that we were going for, and so you might see a lot of anime that have very Caucasian-looking or appearing characters, but that that are Japanese Mm -hmm. because they're aiming for this aesthetic. Again, it's a very, it's a very complex world of discussion that you know that is important to discuss without having to put any groups down.
0: Absolutely, and do you think that that discussion? Whatever side of it you're on, do you think that that discussion is happening more and is happening in a more civil way? I think it is, uh, it's happening. (laughs)
1: Um, Whether it's civil or not, I think that's still to be determined because I think. You know, with the the internet and with social media, it's so easy to drag someone down. Um, You can go and pitchfork against someone and be a social justice warrior and tear someone down. At the end of the day, we're all humans. And I think, you know, cosplay is, is a way to kind of bring out some of that humanity creatively. But, you know, we all have... We all take risks whenever we cosplay, play, um, whether it's a social risk or personal or financial risk in doing all that. So I think that the
0: conversation is still evolving. One of the things I wanted to know is when did you know that this could be your job? Uh, because this is your cosplaying is your full time job at this point, correct? Yes. When did you realize this could be what you do and comfortably fully support yourself?
1: absolutely so i realized that you know cosplay can be a paying sustaining pathway when i started to cosplay maui the demigod from moana and to be able to compete in competitions with him and gain positive pr from it uh, and also gain bookings and private appearances as that character I realized that there is a follow through within cosplay as as a way to
0: make an income. How do you pick what conventions it is that you will comp- not just attend but compete at? Um I look
1: for cons that have a visibility So in terms of audience size, because for conventions, I know that that is a platform for me to self-advertise. You know, if if I get in front of people or get in front of cameras, that is an opportunity to further my personality and be able to see me. I think... You know, those who compete and do this professionally also know that 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 is a platform for that. So I look for conventions that I know that I can potentially get some good footage from, so I can use that for my reel. And then I also look for if I'm competing for cash, you know, what the
0: prize pot might look like. What do those winnings look like? What do you take home?
1: I think it really depends on the convention. You may have conventions where you can maybe take home a hundred dollars for a grand prize, or it can be a convention where the one that I'm going to be a guest at uh, in a few weeks um, in Manila, Philippines, Asia Pop Comic Con, where
0: the grand prize is, 50, is fifteen thousand U.S. dollars. So walk me through, if you would, please. Um, you have decided on which con to go to. What does that day look like for you at a professional level um, at at a large convention?
1: Sure. Um, So I'll give you an example of my experience when I was competing as Doctor Strange at New York Comic-Con. The day really begins early. You start maybe 6 o'clock in the morning, And what is great is that before the convention happens, the con organizers will send you kind of a schedule of what the day's going to look like. And so, you know, after you get up and you eat your breakfast and you shower and you start getting into costume, so that might take anywhere from 30 minutes to about two hours just to get into fully dressed into your costume or partially dressed. But once you actually hit the holding room area where you check in, it's all about business and getting ready for prejudging. So prejudging is what happens when you're all assigned kind of a uh, which spot to go into, and so you are you you go in with your. Um, full costume some, and you bring your reference materials as well. So I personally prepare kind of a, a small binder with photos of my work work in progress and
0: creating costumes so they can show that I actually made it myself. So when you're in the room, the prejudging, you have to show how accurate uh, to the screen or to the comic page your costume is. I think
1: um you want to you aim for accuracy and you uh, and you you end up with kind of um your interpretation of that. Okay. And so what I did for Dr. Strange is that I brought all the reference images that I could find of Benedict Cumberbatch as Dr. Strange from front, back, profile, as close as possible. Look for any reference images from the costume designer um, and print all of those out and then kind of juxtapose it with all of my work in progress. So to showcase the intricacy of the design of the cloak, the all of the pleats and the tunic, et cetera. And so the judges, usually it's a panel of four or five and they come from varying areas of expertise. And so they look at that and, and you only have a limited time so you might only have one or th- to three minutes with the judges. So you have to come prepared. You have to know exactly what to, how to walk through your, your presentation um,
0: and be able to sell them on, on uh, why you're qualified to win. Is it expected from those judges that you've made? 100% of your costume.
1: Depending on the competition, they've got some rules where it's 100% you have to make it yourself and then they have some that are like maybe 80, 70% you with assistance of someone else or that was um, bought from Etsy or what have you. But, you know, when you're at this level of competition and you've got a prize pot that is, you know, um, significant, then they're expecting you to have made your costume.
0: And is that the difference between professional cosplay and what you earlier called closet cosplay? Closet coming from pre-made stuff.
1: Yeah, like uh, a closet cosplay might be something you might wear at a convention on a Sunday afternoon mm-hmm. when, you're, when you want to be in cosplay, but you don't want to, you know, you want to be there and, and enjoy it because it's casual and you're comfortable. When you're competing at this level of, of a competition, you're bringing your exhibition piece. Mm-hmm. This is an exhibition. It's a parade where you're you're. So it's
0: really not much different than what we might think of as a normal or or a legitimate fashion show to a certain. Absolutely.
1: Degree. I mean, you know, at, an, at the end of the day, you know, it's a pageant. Mm-hmm. And so you are being judged on the quality of your craftsmanship. You're being judged on how you perform it on stage. Uh, intricacy,
0: you know, choice, movement. Mm-hmm. Oh, so interest. So so once you've gotten past prejudging and you get to the actual. Judging in the competition, it, it sounds like you don't just walk down a catwalk and come back. You said there's a performative aspect to this? There is. Uh, and uh, depending on the,
1: um, on the competition, you might have one where it's skit-based. You'll have some uh, three minutes or so uh, to perform some sort of skit. And then you have some that are um, where you have maybe about a minute to hit maybe four or five different marks on stage and show your best hero poses. And so that is an opportunity to perform as well.
0: And so for you, once you've been um, judged and the awards have been announced, does your work day end there? On competition day, it begins at
1: 6 o'clock, probably ends at 10, 11 p.m. Um, I think it, it really, it depends on the depth of the networking you want to do. So there might be some points, um, you know, uh, there might be a break before you have to be uh, after you're prejudged and you have to be back in in the room to go on stage. So you, maybe you might have two or three hours for like a lunch break. And that might be an opportunity to meet up with potential partners, potential sponsors and what have you. So you're, while you're in costume, you are a billboard for your brand, for whatever that you're building or you're, you're selling. So if you are a sewist or a seamstress or a costume designer, you want to showcase your best work because that is your calling card.
0: So I'd like to hear about t- two different costumes, your Maui costume, since It's certainly one of the most recognizables that you have. And then another one that you really enjoy. How long does it take to create one of these? And are you ever really done working on them?
1: Sure. Um, one of my favorite costumes that I'm continually evolving is Ursula, the sea witch. And I first debuted, um, Ursula about two years ago at, I believe it's a Katsucon, and, um, I spent a large chunk of my time engineering Ursula, trying to figure out how to create her tentacles that weren't the ones that you've seen before. So I've seen a lot of Ursula costumes. They're really amazing. And so there are some tried and true techniques in making her her tentacles, but I wanted uh, tentacles that were dynamic and flowed. So I spent uh, maybe about two months engineering her tentacles out of steel, kind of steel framework. And at the end of the day, I was able to sew together cat tunnels that I was then able to cover with fabric that moved when i moved so i created an entire collapsible hmm. transportable tentacle system that could fit the whole costume in one luggage and so overall time probably about three months to uh, wow. put it all together so it really and, seems pretty
0: quick when it all comes down to it
1: it seems quick but the, the thinking behind it takes time and then you also have to do your fabric shopping and with that particular costume this is before i had a sewing machine i hand sewed everything so this is you know, at the end of the day, you're working a 10-hour day, you come home, you have dinner, and you sit the rest of the night sewing. So that was a costume that um, I also made the the wig for that, um, did the makeup, create all the accessories. So, And how long did it take you to fabricate and put together Maui? Uh, with Maui, it took about four months to pull together. Um, a large chunk of it was studying all the tattoos um, on his, uh, the character design. Um, I bought the book, The Art of Moana, and and which laid out some of the tattoo designs and to replicate that into to fit my proportions. So I had to adjust it to, to fit me and to be able to create his hook and engineer all the lights in that as well.
0: How does someone know that they can go from doing this part-time or doing this as a hobby and you know, perhaps you know, quit their job someplace else and really make an actual living at this.
1: Sure. I think when someone transitions from a hobbyist to a full-time cosplayer where cosplay is their main source of income... They have to be prepared for a lot of work. It's not just a 40-hour work week, more like an 80-hour work week since you're doing a lot of the office management aspects while you're trying to create your costumes. And so because this is a kind of a switch between left and right brain, you have to be a master of all. And time management is going to be the key aspect into becoming successful. And it takes a certain personality type to succeed in, uh, in being a professional cosplayer in which you have to be very tenacious in, uh, in what you're doing and networking. You have to be prolific in your work. And you also have to maintain also a, uh, a branded personality when you're communicating out with your friends. So that is a, a major gap that needs to be bridged when you're going from, uh, I'm just doing this for fun to I want to make this a full-time career decision.
0: All of us that have listened to your storytelling knows that you can give us some inspirational advice. So, what would you say to help inspire a new cosplayer for someone that wants to get into this?
1: I think for anyone who wants to get into cosplay, start from the heart. I think it's really important when you when you feel that you're passionate about a character or anything that you're you really come from a place where you love it. And my philosophy is, you know, being a professional cosplayer is that it always has to be 51% fun, 49% business. If it ever becomes even or less than fun, then I stop it because it always has to come from a place where I enjoy it. And I think for a lot of cosplayers who they want to make, the, you know, 30 new cosplays this year, that's fine. But if you want to just pick one that you want to start with and put your passion into it and learn techniques, start from there. You don't have to create, you know, uh, every, you know every week a new costume. You know, put your focus into, uh, into creating something that you can love and you can own. And I think at a general rule of thumb for all cosplayers that uh, they should know is that, you know, cosplay is for everybody. It's for um, everyone who, whether it's a hobby or you're doing it professionally, um, I think acceptance and tolerance is still growing for that. And I think that because it already has been disenfranchised a long time ago, being something nerdy and, you know, ostracized, but now it's becoming a bit more accepted. I think we have to be able to support each other and be able to be role models for others as well.
0: And if... Anybody wants to be able to follow you online and get um, the newest information from what it is that you're doing, where should we turn? Where should we go? Yes, you can find my work. You can Google Canvas Cosplay and you'll you'll be able to
1: find my website. Uh, You can also find me on Facebook, on Twitter and Instagram. um, uh, The handle Canvas Cosplay, C-A-N-V-A-S Cosplay.
0: Well, folks, you've done it again. You've taken your smart pill and you're better for it. I want to say thank you again to Phil for joining me. If you want to learn more about him, you can find him online at Canvas Cosplay. Smart Pill is brought to you by the WHRO Emerging Leaders Board, a group of millennial professionals in their 20s and 30s who believe in the power of public media to making their voices heard. The podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Emerging Talks event series, bringing critical information and important conversations to the people of Hampton Roads, and across the country. The podcast is produced by Keith Saunders, Ryan McIntyre, and Truly Matthews, and is produced in association with WHRO. Sound recording and technical assistance by Victor Bowen, and a special thanks to the WHRO Director of Community Engagement, Nancy Rogan, and the WHRO Marketing Department. On behalf of the Emerging Leaders Board, I'm Ryan McIntyre, and I'll talk to you again when it's time to take your smart pill.